Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Welcome. Welcome to Visual Workplace Radio, where we learn why visual information sharing is so important and what happens if it's not in place. Hello. Hi. My name is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm your host on this, our weekly radio show, where we talk about and celebrate workplace visuality, letting the workplace speak. Thank you for taking time in your busy day. Thank you to tune in. And you know, in each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, how visuality allows you to embed the intelligence of your operational system into the living landscape of work through visual devices and visual systems, how to embed your intelligence, how to install the details of your current enterprise excellence, that current level whether you are not exactly as excellent as you wish you would be or as you know you will be. And it doesn't matter if you work in a factory, healthcare, office, open pit mine, visuality is about sharing information, embedding information. And when you embed information, you embed behavior. And when you liberate information, you liberate the human will. We'll be talking about that on today's show. And the reasons for it are... Well, stunning. First of all, you get great bottom line results. We always see a 15% increase in productivity, even in lean plants. Improvements in safety, cost, quality, on-time delivery. And we see splendid, growing cultural alignment, a spirited and engaged workforce. And you know what else? I count this as the third sterling benefit. We enjoy ourselves at work. When the workplace speaks, we automatically have a partner, a happy partner working with us, working with us because we have made it so. And we can flow. As my great friend and ace machine operator, Rick L. has said, we can do the dance of work. We do the dance of work. Oh, wonderful. So welcome. Welcome. And you know, I know I left you in terrible suspense at the end of our last show, didn't I? I am so sorry, but I started a story that was elaborate and I just couldn't finish it. So I left you just at the moment. Do you remember Charlie's story? Just at the moment when Charlie was screaming his lungs out. I promise not to scream into the microphone, but I will share the, the stunning detail. I want to just kind of recap for folks who may have not heard last week's show. It was about the big little mistakes we make at the outset of doorway one, going through the door, the doorway model, the 10 doorway model, early mistakes that so many companies make in the first step of the first step of a very long journey. You can call that long journey 5S, you can call it workplace visuality, I call it work that makes sense, operator-led visuality. It is doorway number one, and it installs the visual wear. And then it goes on to trigger many, many other levels of, of visuality for operators. And the first step of that journey, 
That long journey is S1. And the mistake that is made is hardly noticed by management because it seems so natural. But it is noticed by many value-add associates, and they simply disenroll. They disenroll from the process. They disenroll from the very sensible activities of getting and keeping the workplace uncluttered, clean, and orderly. What could be wrong with that? Well, the wrong is not in the what, but in the how. So let me just review what I call the three little big mistakes or the three big little mistakes, the ones that happen at the outset. In S1, first of all, that number one, not everybody sees what you see as junk. There's a very wide difference between what I think is junk and somebody else may think of as junk. And if I impose my will, they'll be throwing away things that are either precious to them emotionally or important for their work especially if you're in a position of authority. So that's the first mistake that uh, pushers of 5S will make. The second one is whenever we touch the things of a workplace, we are in the world of the territorial imperative. We are in the world of perceived ownership. Even though all of the things of work typically are assets of the company, the tools, the consumables, the benches, chairs, whatever, machines. They literally belong to someone else, but they sure feel like mine. After 17 years in this department, they sure feel like mine. So the mistake is we don't recognize, we fail to recognize, or we don't fully recognize that people at work are complex human beings. They have complex emotional mechanisms. That is also scientifically speaking. And they have this other complexity called perception. They think that something is so because they perceive it as so. And that junk you're trying to get rid of is actually my mine. It's my stuff. So we have to tread very, very lightly. We have to have a protocol of values and behaviors that are aligned with those values. And then the third little big mistake is that you consider winning that battle, this battle of wills about getting rid of the junk, as a win. But in fact, you lose the war. It's called a pyrrhic or pyrrhic victory. It's a story of a famous king, King Pyrrhus of Epirus, and his army suffered irreplaceable casualties in, defi- in defeating the Romans in one particular battle, a large battle, a Herculean battle, it's described, at, in t- uh, 280 B.C., and uh, the, the historian, whose name is Plutarch, he made a report and he said, you know, the armies separated and Pyrrhus turned to one of his uh, comrades and said, another such victory will utterly undo me because he lost such a great part of his forces and among them were his friends and principal commanders and there were no other recruits to be had. His confederates were living hundreds and hundreds of miles away in his home country, which we know as Italy. And so, in fact, winning that battle ultimately defeated him. 
It's when a victory inflicts a very large or even devastating toll on the victor, which is really just about the same as defeat. So when somebody wins a Pyrrhic victory, there's a heavy toll, and it negates any sense of achievement. So managers, you can win this. You're in a position of authority. You're in a position of power. You can exert your will. You can make your employees do your will. Throw the darn stuff out. Get rid of it, period. And when you do, their commitment and investment goes with it. And I think most of us know this now. This may seem primitive to some of the listeners who are far beyond this point. And the point that I want to make in this episode and in last episode is be careful with the start of the journey. It may seem like the first step, but it is also a step into a value stream or a value stream that will demonstrate to those who are watching how the rest of the journey is going to go. Let me add to the three big little mistakes, (laughs) another set of three. I call them the three immutable, immutable rules of S1, S1 principles. And they're pretty simple. We went over them last week. Let me just scan them. First of all, except for very personal items, everything, the premise is everything belongs to the company. It's an asset. And because it's an asset, it doesn't get thrown away. It doesn't belong to you to throw away. And this is the important part. It gets removed from your value field. All And managers, all you're asking, and if you frame it in this way, it will both make the request more gentle, but also more logical. Remove it from your value field. Don't think about throwing it away. Think about removing it. Putting it into a red tag corner. The second rule, immutable rule, which is a little bit of a surprise to some people, never throw anything out. Don't throw it out. It doesn't go in the trash. And managers, this is for your protection. It is also for the protection of your employees. Not everybody knows the value of everything, and so they cannot determine to throw something out unless they know its use intimately now, in the past, and in the future. So you have this rule. Don't throw it out. Again, just remove it from your value field. And the third is the majority does not rule. Or the flip side of it is don't use red tagging to vote. Voting when you're trying to build culture is a mistake. You don't have to go through lengthy consensus and have a discussion about whether or not we should keep this uh, bucket of rags or, in the case of one group, an old refrigerator. You don't vote. You simply say, what color trumps the rest? So, if you've got many reds and one green, one green green trumps. If you have many reds and one yellow, yellow trumps. If you have many yellows and one green, green trumps. Do you see? So you're not throwing it out. You're not voting. You're treating every 
item as an asset and implicitly valuable, and you're not getting tangled up in making S1 a power struggle. Because, in fact, S1 has a powerful purpose. It can, used along these guidelines and ones that you will add to it, build employee involvement in the improvement process and in your 5S. It's not difficult. It's not complex. The 5S tasks are low-cost activities that make sense. They have tangible results. Just be careful with the value system. You don't have to push. If somebody doesn't want to play, then let them grow into the role. If they do harm, of course, then your HR takes over your HR policies. If they want to do harm or sabotage or use bad language repeatedly, not just in a fit, but as a kind of habit or hammer, then you know what to do. But 5S actually should build a good feeling and can build a good feeling. So I was telling you about Charlie, this story that is an actual true story. and It was a very pivotal one for me. It didn't have a pleasant ending, but there was a great deal that I learned and the people around me learned. We were unprepared for it. Charlie worked for Hamilton Standard. He was not a happy person, but he did outstanding work. And Hamilton Standard consigned him to the corner of what's called the hen house, which is where the ladies laid down the resin on the prop on the propellers. This was the prop center at Hamilton Standard in Windsor Locks. Clark Shea the Great, the incomparable Clark Shea, was the plant manager, and it was Stanley Mickens who was in charge of the prop center. I called him Sam in the last show, and then I suddenly I was struck with, oh, no, no, his, that was Stanley. He was a West Point graduate, and oh, my goodness, he was just such um, a, uh, an effective and values-driven manager. I loved working with him. So, as I told you the last time, The 5S plus 1 visual order implementation that I was asked to conduct and work with the operators on was going very well. Everything looked terrific, except for Charlie's Corner. We left him alone because it was clear that he didn't want to play this game. It was clear that he opted out, and I didn't have a better strategy for bringing him on board. So I did what I considered to be the wise thing, and I still consider it to be the wise thing. I said, leave him alone. You know, if he wants to stay separate, don't mess with him. Leave him alone. That's his choice. Let him be grumpy. He does excellent work, and everybody here is an adult. If he wants to be grumpy, then that's his, uh, his personality, and let's respect it. So we left him alone. And then, if you remember, the plant was under threat. The plant was going to be closed in six months, three months, four months, if it didn't get a big contract, and that was set at something over, $3 million or over. And lo and behold, Colonel was walking through, assessing the plant, and came to the prop center, and he saw this visual indicator, a standing sign that said, that showed the unit before it went into final machining in a Mendeley, big, massive machining center, and what it looked like when it came out. And he looked at that, and he turned to Stanley. Stanley told me about it later, and he said, you know what? 
I'm going to give you guys the contract. You've got the same cost, the same quality, the same process as your competitors. I've seen them already, but I feel smarter here. That visual standing sign (laughs) informed the colonel. He felt smarter. He felt connected. He said, I'm going to give you the contract. Uh, You know what? Fireworks, firecrackers, hoots and hollers, and oh boy. And corporate, UTC, United Technologies, found out about it. They had plans to sell the plant. They were looking for the highest bidder. They were going to use the ground. You know, this is right near the airport in Hartford. And uh, they get the call that you asked us to do it, and we did it, and now you have to keep your promise. (laughs) They were caught. So the marketing guy was coming on. The call came in on Wednesday that the marketing, VP of marketing, was going to come down and look at the plant and get the story. How did this happen? (laughs) Clark got the call. And he said, Stanley, would you please make a presentation? And Stanley turned to his steering team, which is made, which was and is, if you follow that model, made up of shop floor associates who are like internal consultants. They're a really tight team of ace visual thinkers. And so it was at at, uh, Hamilton Standard in the Prop Center. There was Harvey, remember their name since the last time, Cynthia, Iago, and Ondine, four members. And they, they took on the task, and on Thursday they met, and they said, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And they had their eye on Charlie's area. They wanted to make a before and after video. So on Friday, they went over to see Charlie in the corner of the hen house. Excuse me, Charlie, he was working. Uh, do you, we have this great idea. You heard what happened. The plant has been saved. They're not going to shut us down. And we are looking for before in the prop center, and you're the only one left. Could we make a video? He was very polite. Harvey was this tall drink of water and just such a nice guy. And uh, could we do it? And then we'll, you don't have to worry about it. We'll just turn everything visual. And on Monday when you come in, you're going to like it a lot. Harvey in particular had his eye on Charlie's rickety rackety table that was pretty much held up by the machines on both sides of it. It was really hammered together. How about it? What do you think, Charlie? And Charlie looked at Harvey and said no. And and, and Harvey was taken aback. So Cynthia came forward. She said, come on, Charlie. I've known you for 27 years. Come on, you could do this for us. It would help. Come on, Charlie, what do you say? And he didn't even look at her. He just said no. And Yago was going to go in for the third time, and Harvey said, no, listen, no is no. Thanks, Charlie. We'll see you later. Let's do plan B. So they huddled together. We went back to a meeting room, and they kind of lined up plan, plan B for Monday. It was late in the day on Friday. And got their ducks in a row and said, okay, we'll do this on Monday and we'll be ready to present on Tuesday. They were a really high-performing team, a great, great human beings. And everybody checked out. <laughs> everybody clocked out, including Charlie. Of only <laughs> Ondine, Yago, and Cynthia stayed. <laughs> they had plans. They were going to surprise Charlie. And so they took their before video of Charlie's Corner, his area, and then they began to do their transformation. (laughs) And the first thing they did 
was to throw the rickety-rackety table into the dumpster and then do other things with the steel table in place. And they made it highly visual because they knew how, they knew the principles, they knew the protocols. It was transformed in a matter of hours. Went home so happy. Can hardly wait until Monday. Charlie's going to be so surprised. I bet we're going to see him smile. Boy, were they wrong. So Harvey told me the rest of the story because I wasn't around. I came by once a month. And he told me the rest of the story. He said, so I came in on Monday morning. It was 625. This is where I left it off with you guys. Punched in. And uh, as I punched in, I heard this terrible sound. It was like a whale. And I thought, oh, my gosh, some poor animal has caught in one of our machines. I must go and help him help it. So he's he's running towards the sound, walking very, very fast. And the sound leads him to the door of his supervisor's, Harvey's supervisor. And through the glass pane, he says, he sees his supervisor and Charlie. And Charlie is screaming at the top of his lungs. His face is red. The veins are popping out of his neck. He is clearly very upset. And as Harvey listens. He realizes he's not just shouting. He is shouting words. Now, I did this to you last time, so I'm going to be a little bit, I'm going to move my mouth away from It sounded like this. I want my table back. I want my table back. I want my table back is what he was screaming. And Harvey got it. He said, oh, my gosh, they did it. They did it after hours. And he went back to his work area, to the prop center, and he went and saw his co-team members. And they said, oh, did you see Charlie's area? But they, wait a minute, why are you looking so upset? And Harvey said, what did you do? Oh, we, well, we, it was, it's wonderful. Come see it. What did you do to Charlie? What? Did you hear that sound? Yes, yeah, some animal caught him. That's Charlie. Huh? Oh, dear, dear, dear. It went downhill from there. I came by about, I think I was there about a week later and met with the steering team, and they, they, they closed the door. It was as though there was some kind of black cloud in the room, dark, somber. I said, what's going on? I could feel it. What's going on? What's, well, well, we kind of did something that we thought was a good idea, and it turned out to be a really not good idea, and I wonder if you could help us kind of make it better. And they told me this story. And I looked at them, and I said, I can't help you. We don't have many opportunities in our life to do something irretrievable, (laughs) something that we cannot reverse, irreversible, but you did it. Unfortunately, it was something negative. I can't help you. I can't help you. Charlie made it clear. And, you know, we went over the things that you already know. And, but that was a Thursday. On Friday, I was due into Boston 
to do a, a second implementation that I was doing at United Electric Controls. And I remember it so well because it was upsetting to me too. Yes, there had been a violation, but the people who did it were innocent. They thought they were doing good. You know how this goes. They were innocent, but they still did harm. And I thought about it because it was a conundrum for me. I'm the external person who's supposed to be the helper, help to solve, help to improve, help to motivate. And I, I, I had taught them 5S plus 1. The first S is get rid of the junk. That's all they were doing, getting rid of that junk motivated by that rickety-rackety table. And I thought about it the next morning, 7 o'clock, I was with the operators at United Electric. And we were well into the implementation by then. And I said this to them because it was heavy on my heart. And I said the following to them that I'm going to share with you. I said, and this is, I remember the moment, and I remember exactly what I said. I said, hey, I have something to tell you. I lied to you before when I said the first S is for sort through, sort out. Parentheses, get rid of the junk. It is not for sort through, sort out. The first S is for spirit. The first S is for the spirit of the workplace and the spirit inside of you. But it is also for the spirit inside of the other person. And when you do S1, you need to find your way through that. When you get rid of the junk, you can't get rid of the people with it. And they had done a good job. We were not challenged in that particular way. That happened at Hamilton, and it wasn't their fault. It just happened. And it just rang so true. And I will tell you, this was actually decades ago. The room went completely still. I was actually a little bit shy to say it. It had occurred to me because one didn't mention spirit in the workplace. It was, uh, what do you call it, Um, wahoo or Ooh, ooh. It was weird. It was weird. You didn't talk about spirit things. It was, you know, none of your business. But the room held in such stillness. And I realized that people were getting it in its fullness, that they understood, because they, in fact, lived within the spirit that I was just describing. They were that spirit. And I happen to say it. Now it's commonly talked about. But way back then, it was 19, was it 80, 90, 91, 92. Not that long ago, really. We've made great strides. But I say that to you as listeners to this show, and I make no bones about it. There is a spirit inside of us. If you're uncomfortable with the word spirit, then you can say power. And if you're uncomfortable with the notion of saying the first S is for spirit, you can say the first S is for respect because we're on the same track. But, of course, people will think you're illiterate if you say the first S is for respect. (laughs) It's kind of a trap, isn't it? 
But that is truth. There's a power inside of it. We can call it the will. We can call it something that is inside of us that is powerful. We can call it stardust. We can call it the internal power to serve or contribute or improve. But you have some hook to hang that on. You recognize what I do, that we are powerful beings and that we agree or consent to enroll that power into a company that we feel is going in a right direction. We'll make that commitment. We will align. We will enroll. Because the direction that the company is going is close enough to my vision of right for me to say yes to it. You're close enough in vision to my vision for me to say, Mr. Boss, Mrs. CEO, yes, I will enroll. It is an act of my own will. This is in essence, this is the essence of iDriven, which we spoke about when we were going through the building blocks. I believe that was the second show. The building blocks, and the first one is I-Driven. It's a building block. There's more to, to, to Charlie's story, and I, I want to talk about that before I kind of go down the road of I-Driven and kind of make some points there. What was discovered about eight, nine, ten months later was why that table was so important to Charlie. It wasn't just a table. Remember I told you he did excellent work? Well, all of his speeds and feeds were written on that table. That was his spec book. And when he cried out, I want my table back, he was saying, I want to continue to perform on the, a level of excellence that I have grown used to and the company expects from me. I am a hero at this work. And those speeds and feeds, my care in noting them and tracking them is one of the reasons. Give me my table back. Give me my CPK back. This is my capability. He was already a visual thinker. He was already embedding information so that the information would be at his fingertips to pull to him when and as he needed it. He was already a contributor and a self-leader. He was just a loner, that's all, and pretty darn grumpy. You see, these are the lessons that Charlie taught us. True story, and not that uncommon What looked like a victory for the team turned into a setback. Hmm? They knew the process and the values. But somehow or other, they missed it in this case because they were under a new urgency. They had this idea in their mind that was already formed and Charlie got in the way. He didn't get on board. Hmm? Not everyone expected him to, but this was different. He opted out of making the plant proud. 
So S1 became a battleground. Yeah, that was amazing, amazing learning. And you know what? When it happens to you directly, I mean, it makes a great story, I know. I love this story because it vividly illustrates what is almost impossible to teach. But man, when you have to live that story and live with the repercussions, and I was one removed, the story is hard. It's hard on the heart. Visuality, the visual wear, any form of visual information sharing is a pull system. That means it is a self-driven model. The self referred to is the same self as we find in the definition of a visual workplace that I shared with you. Self-explaining, self-ordering, self-regulating, self-improving. That self is the individual employee. Letting people keep what is for them their cherished or needed items will not ruin the visual initiative. It won't even slow it down. On the contrary, it usually accelerates the rate because those who normally work against the momentum or stay on the sidelines suddenly see that the how is values-based as well. They're not going to get run over. Visual order, the visual wear, border, address, if possible, an ID label for everything that casts a shadow can ignite a kind of missionary zeal in us. Managers who sometimes tire of process-oriented improvement hear about 5S and declare a war on junk, kamikaze style. Get rid of everything in the area that even looks like clutter. (laughs) And the area empties fast. And then Charlie's story in various versions gets played out in companies all over the world. And many times, the learning that comes out of them is missed, limited. People walk away permanently angry, for example, at Charlie, self-righteous in their belief that they did the right thing. That could happen. And then they get stuck on a bumpy road, adversarial implementation, This my way or the highway approach will not build the kind of participation you need to achieve the visual wear where people actually own the functions of their workplace. We'll go into detail about work that makes sense, which is the the now the evolution of the five S lessons and learnings I had in the nineteen eighties. It's evolved into something quite formidable and dazzling and fabulous. It's the first step of a long journey, and the journey is to achieve a workplace that speaks. That's not just the visual management part. Visual management is a subset of the visual workplace or workplace visuality. We'll spend a show on that as well. It's largely misunderstood. But we're talking now about doorway number one, and the work of S1, it is and it should be open to all. It can become a proving ground for the tasks and the transformation that comes later. But you fail in S1, and the implementation can develop a limp 
that will always encumber it, especially if you follow up and kind of enforce it through audits. Mm, Difficult for me. Very difficult. But succeed in S1 and your deployment will gather momentum and become a channel for not just cleaning up the workplace and deepening the safety and lowering the cost, but it will be a channel for developing people and opening up their spirits and the benefits go straight to the bottom line. I think of another story. I have several stories I could pull up here, but I think about a man that I met in Texas at a big aerospace manufacturer. And I want to kind of tell this story the way I digested it. It's about the social fabric of the workplace, the work culture. With When it's out of balance, if you don't make a substantive change to the culture, no implementation, no methodology, however excellent in form and intent it may be, will be sustainable. And isn't that what you want? Don't you want your efforts and, for example, your 5S to be engaging and sustainable? There's a change that must begin at the level of, in my experience, over not low these many years, but low these many decades, is that that change begins at the, at the level of the employee's sense of self and his or her place in the world, within the enterprise. I think about a book written by Charles Dickens. He wrote um, the Christmas Carol. He also wrote David Copperfield. And that novel, David Copperfield, begins with a really important moment when David is pondering his young life. He's walking along, and in the quiet of his heart, he asks, will I be the hero of my own life? Will I be the hero of my own life? And over the next 400 pages, David proceeds to discover the answer to that question in the trials and adventures of becoming a man in 19th century England. David's question is our question. Though quietly forgotten, as we grow older, you know how that goes, when each of us was young, that was the question in our hearts. Will I be the hero of my own life? It may have been worded somewhat differently. It may sounded more like, what will I be when I grow up? And deep in the mystery of our childhood and then of our adolescent heart was a profound belief that whatever it turned out to be, that hero, I would be excellent at it. That heroic effort, my contribution to the world, I will excel. I will make something of my life. I will be its hero. And I I had an experience of this. In fact, this connection to David Copperfield happened because of an experience I had at this aerospace manufacturer in Texas, in fact, 
in Fort Worth, where I spent many wonderful moments and years helping them with their implementation. And one of the employees and operator, I'll call him Ted, came up to me one day. He had started at the firm, as he told me, 27 years before, fresh out of high school. His dad worked there before him. And Ted told me that as a kid, he would stand in his backyard and see the fighter jets cut white streamers across the sky. And he said, I was thrilled to my bones. And someday I said, I'm going to join my daddy and I'm going to make those jets so slick and fast and perfect. He said to himself, I'm going to make fighter jets when I grow up. That's what I'm going to do just like my daddy. And Ted, he was telling me the story. He said, when I got out of high school, I went right to this great aerospace manufacturer. I remember pulling open this glass door. I went in, I applied, they accepted me. Gwendolyn, I went in to be a hero. I wanted to do something great. That was 27 years ago. And he looked at me and he said, what happened? That was 27 years ago, said Ted. And then he said, what happened? I looked at him and I saw the fine person that he was. But I knew that Ted wanted me to look deeper. He wanted, to, he wanted me to see the hero that was still inside, waiting and wanting to get out. I was silent. I didn't know what to say. But it was a remarkable, remarkable moment for me. And I think part of every job description for a CEO, president, plant manager, VP, supervisor is to help employees find and manifest the hero within. What would that be like if that was emblematic in your company where you said that's what our job is, to help people become heroes at work? Wouldn't that widen the definition of your work, and wouldn't it inspire it? What would happen if you took that on? What would happen if you just quietly took it on without any other colleagues? Just try it out. If you were in charge of finance, that would be fantastic. (laughs) Or a production manager or CEO of a multinational. What would happen if you committed to helping each person who reports to you become a hero in their own work? What part of your current job would stay the same? What part would change? What part of you would change? Your work culture is identity's mirror. Identity's mirror. The success that I have had in bringing visuality to companies is largely accounted to by the segmentation of the 10-doorway approach so that I can clearly see a visual category visual function and an organizational level, and I can be helpful about the information that is really needed to be a successful supervisor, successful engineer, manager, operator, machinist, 
office employee. The segmentation has helped. But the other part is that it's eye-driven. It's based on what do I need to know? What do I need to share? My definition of work culture has simplified over the years. And I say it like this now. Definition of a work culture. This isn't definition of a great work culture, but of a work culture is who I think I am and who I think you are. That's what it is. Who I think I am and who I think you are, whoever that you is. Definition of a high-performing work culture, a kind of shingle prize-winning work culture is I know that I am you. I know that I am you. My alignment is with myself because you and I are the same. Whatever your position is. Yeah, that's eye-driven. Eye-driven isn't giving up the we, the team. It is simply recognizing the power within and understanding that if it's inside of me, it's inside of you. And if I feel powerful in my work, let me help you feel powerful in your work because that's waiting for you. The work culture is identities mirror. When we use these wonderful methodologies, and 5S can be that, it can be full of wonderment, but you have to shift the emphasis and do a few other things. You use it as a vehicle for the development of a work culture, and that's what makes it sustainable, not just because people want it, but because people will own it and develop it as their own and powerfully. We don't have to be afraid of anarchy because we give people power. This power within is self-regulating. It very, very rarely kind of gets away from us because part of that power is the values that put it there. And that's something beyond any of us. This goodness in us is given to us. These are deeply held beliefs by me, and they have informed the methodologies that I've developed over low these decades. And the goodness happens as a result. And what comes out is a workplace that speaks in the voice of the people who designed it. My job is to provide the protocols and the methodologies and to shift people if they get too far away from the values that inform it. But S1 is the opportunity for so many companies. Use it. There's no but about it. I shouldn't say but. And S1 is an opportunity for that to begin happening. Unfortunately, as I said in a recent show, the form that came to the West is a form that works in the East. And, you know, that's a huge cultural difference. So any kind of struggle around 5S may be just because some shift needs needs to be made. So I wanted to share these things with you. There's... There's much more to be said, and we will do that over the weeks and months where we're together because this speaks to me very, very deeply, and I believe that it's important 
for you to have the right perspective on this part of the workplace that we call information. It sounds flat. It is not. It sounds like I'm talking about data. I am not. I am talking about meaning. And when we put meaning onto information, the result is language. That visuality is a language. And we must learn to speak it. Every doorway has a dialect, if you will, a particular idiom. And the enterprise begins to speak and align because of this common language that's developed through a workforce of visual thinkers. I hope these pieces are beginning to kind of blend together and make sense to you. And that's what we're talking about here. We will move on. (laughs) Believe it or not, in the next episode, we will move on to Doorway 2. We'll talk about visual standards. We'll spend a whole show on that, and then we'll move on to Doorway 3, visual displays, visual scheduling, production control boards. We'll probably do two shows on that because it's very rich and because I think there's a certain absence of understanding. But we will march through the rest of the doorways. But this theme that we find in doorway one with the eye-driven is a constant. It's a constant. So I had a great time with you today. I really love sharing what I've learned. It has been so rich for me that I, uh, I really take great pleasure in sharing it with you. So I'm just going to say that's it for today. And this is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm signing off, and I look forward to the next time. You bet I do. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.